key aspect of our church life together is the way we work through the Bible systematically. In my time here at Dural, we've preached through uh, the book of Daniel, we've preached through the book of Acts, uh, the book of Micah, uh, we've preached through most of Matthew, uh, we've preached through Mark, Galatians, and now this first section of the book of Romans. There are two reasons, at least, that we do that. There are probably many more, but I'll give you two. Uh, One is it's instructive and the other is it's protective. It's instructive to preach through the Bible systematically because as we do that, we gain a bigger picture of who God is, his character, the way he works in the world, and in particular, the way that he's related to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's instructive to work through the word of God systematically. But it's also protective. Protective for you. It protects you from me always just wheeling out my hobby horses and my favourite passages. So it's instructive and it's protective to preach through large sections of the Bible. But it's also protective for me because, well, I don't know if protective is the right word, but it doesn't allow me the luxury to say, well, I'll preach on this bit because I like it and I'll ignore this bit because I don't. If you were with us last week, you would have heard the Apostle Paul declare, chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And we heard that central to this gospel, this announcement, is the news that God has reached out to helpless sinners through the perfect obedience of his son and through the perfect sacrifice of his son, God has made it possible. We sang it earlier. God has made a way for us to have a right standing with him. Do you remember the word was righteousness? That's what it means. We can have a right standing with God because of what his son has done. This is the gospel. And Paul says, this gospel is powerful to save. But the question is, save from what? Well, answering that question is going to be our task over coming weeks. And we begin today, verse 18. If you've got your Bible open at Romans 1, that's going to be really helpful for you. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. I've got a book, it's called The Hardest Sermons You'll Ever Preach. I've got to tell you, it's light on for gags, uh, and I haven't found any pictures in it yet. It's pretty tough reading, but it's full of helpful advice on how you might approach difficult situations. It's got a chapter on how you might speak at the funeral of a child. It's got how you might approach a community tragedy. It's even got a chapter on what you might say at the funeral of a murder victim. Haven't needed that one yet, but it's lighthearted, stuff like that. It was printed in 2011. Depending on how old you are, that was either ages ago or you know, seemingly about 15 minutes ago. Old or young, though, I think we can agree. Our world has changed dramatically since 2011. And perhaps most noticeably, in community attitudes towards sexual behaviour and sexual expression. 
I think if a new edition of this book was printed today, a chapter on how to preach from Romans 1 would be very useful. I know I'd find it useful. Because in a culture committed now to celebrating and to affirming all kinds of sexual behaviour, Romans 1 is now considered harmful. So what do we do? Romans 1 speaks against same-sex behaviour. But Romans 1 is not about same-sex behaviour. And further, if we make Romans 1 about same-sex behaviour, we'll miss the point and very likely, in addition to missing the point, when you miss the point of God's word, almost inevitably you will misapply God's word. And you'll find yourself saying things like, well, same-sex behaviour is the worst of sins. When it's not. Now, this seems like a good opportunity to remind you of what I said last week. This letter is going to make us work hard. And our sermons are going to be a bit longer than normal, but again, I believe in you. In coming weeks, we're going to confront unfashionable biblical truth, not least today, as the Apostle Paul holds up a mirror to pagan culture. And in it is revealed the ugly picture of people in rebellion against God. In Romans 1, the charge against us is read. The evidence is presented. The verdict is passed. And the sentence is being revealed. Look at verse 18, it's present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed. Yes, it's true, there is a day of wrath to come, a day of judgment when the secrets of people's hearts will be revealed, but we have this now being revealed. So let's be very clear from the start. If, verse 16, the gospel, that announcement that we can be right with God, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, then from what must we be saved? The sobering truth here is that we learn we must be saved from God himself. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What's this passage about? Well, for what it's worth, here's my one-liner. Aside from his mercy, and we heard about that last week, aside from his mercy, we are rightly under the judgment of God, without exception and without excuse. We begin verses 18 to 23. God's anger being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed. But what does it mean exactly for God to be angry? I mean, my parents used to get angry with me. I know you'll find that hard to believe, but it's true. And we get angry too, don't we? We snap, we lose our temper, we, we speak harshly, and, and we're bizarre creatures because we do this to those most close to us. 
But even when our anger is justified, when our anger is rightly and well expressed, we can't escape our sinful motives, our pride in needing to be proven right, our vanity, our selfishness. And so the result of that is when we hear that God is angry, we work from our experience and we say to ourselves, well, God loses his temper, just like I do, just with a little bit more volume. But God's anger is nothing like ours. His anger is pure. And it's very, very slow. Let's think of God's patience towards us. Even when we refuse to thank him, when we refuse to worship him as he deserves, what's his response? Well, he continues to meet our needs, doesn't he? Through his creation, which he upholds. We're not like that. But the flip side of being slow to anger is that once provoked, there's nowhere to hide. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now, some people will tell you that the opposite of anger is love. Not so. No, in the face of evil and injustice, the opposite of anger would be to say, whatever. I don't care. The fancy word would be indifference. No, it's precisely because God loves all that he has made Because of his faultless character, God will not let human evil go unpunished. And so, Romans 1, the Apostle Paul drags us into the courtroom. Paul, being the experienced lawyer that he is, he presents the evidence. Follow with me, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. We heard that Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. This has been seen from what's understood and and people are without excuse. So creation shows us what? God exists. Creation shows us God is all-powerful. And creation tells us that God is worthy of our worship. And notice verse 20 confirms everyone understands this. This is available to all people. Now, it's true to say, and we need to remind ourselves, creation doesn't tell us how we must be saved. We need the special revelation of Jesus Christ for that. However, we understand well enough from what's been made, that we should seek God. We know this, but we deliberately suppress the truth and we set ourselves up as rivals to God. How do we suppress the truth? Well, look at verse 21. We refuse to glorify or thank God. Verse 23, we exchange the glory of God and we serve worthless idols 
Say more about that in a minute. Verse 25, we exchange the truth about God for what? For a lie. And verse 28, we disregard all knowledge of God and we believe ourselves to be wise. This is the rap sheet. The verdict is in and we're found guilty on all charges. There are no excuses, no exceptions. We knew exactly what we were doing. How are we going? Are we hanging in there? You still with me? I wonder if you've ever watched a situation play out where you think to yourself, what's wrong with people? I'm like that when I drive. Because, of course, I'm, an, I'm a perfect driver. It's all you people. What's wrong with people? But if you ever looked out on the world and you, and you say to yourself, what has gone wrong? What's the answer? Well, I'll tell you the answers that our world will give. They pull one of two levers. You want to change behaviour. What do you do? Well, firstly, we turn to education because we have the assumption that everybody is rational and sensible. If I can show you what's good because you're rational and sensible, then you'll do what's good. Won't you? And if that doesn't work, we then turn to government legislation and we force people's behaviour to change. How does that go? Well, just picture yourself as a problem gambler. We've just crossed live to the sports bet newsroom. They're updating the odds on the next NRL game. And do you know how it finishes with that line, gamble responsibly? Do you think a problem gambler hears that and suddenly has the realisation, oh, that's what I've been doing wrong all this time? If only it were that simple. The difficulty for us is that the problem's not out there. It's in here. Years ago in the United Kingdom, they have a, a, a newspaper called The Times. I'm sure some of you will know this. And the editorial um, at one stage was a question, what's wrong with the world? And there's a guy called G.K. Chesterton. I don't know how you graduate to having your initials first, whatever it is. He graduated to that. G.K. Chesterton, terrific name, terrific man. And do you know what? He wrote a response to the editor and the response was very simple. It just read, dear sir, I am. Yours sincerely. What's wrong with the world? I am. That's a man who understands Romans 1. The moral chaos of the Romans 1 world that we see out there, why is that so? Well, because we are Romans 1 people. And so how is God going to respond? His response might take you by surprise. Verses 24 to 32. It has a repeated phrase that ought to send a chill down our spine. God gave them over. So he gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over. Three times we hear it. I've met several parents throughout the course of my pastoral ministry whose children have become drug addicts. These parents love their kids. And because they love their kids, they'll put up with the stealing. They'll put up with the lies. 
They'll tolerate the abuse. But in every case, eventually you reach a point where even the most loving parents have to say, enough. And with deep reluctance, they, as it were, hand their children over to the consequences of their choices. It's not the same thing because here God gives us over. It's deliberate and it's an act of judgment. But there are parallels. In response to our staggering rebellion, God's patience comes to an end. And he gives us over to our desires. And when you hear that for the first time, you might think to yourself, that's terrific, I get to do what I want. But it's a horrible prison. For example, verse 25, we worship created things rather than the creator. So what will God do? Well, here's another truth bomb from G.K. Chesterton. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. We'll worship money, sex, power, admiration, achievement, you name it. We'll slave after it. And there's a very curious detail here. When we give ourselves to false worship of false gods, and that's all idolatry means, false worship of a false god, when we do this, sexual impurity is never far away. Look at the connection between false worship and sexual immorality. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, having done this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. Now, if you need convincing of how this plays out, let me give you a modern example. I want you to meet someone. Her name is Mistress Lucilla. Just need to get her job description right. She's called a dominatrix and kink companion. I didn't know really what that was either. Here's a pro tip for you. Don't Google it. It's going to ruin your search history. This is from the Sydney Morning Herald about two weeks ago. Okay, this is mainstream. I haven't trawled the internet to find an example that proves my point. This is mainstream stuff. Now, you can see the crucifix there displayed in her brothel. This is what she says. Why is it there? Well, it's a place of worship, isn't it? To which the journalist replied, people worship her for the things she can do. False worship of false gods. So God gives us over to sexual impurity. Now, hang on, someone will say these are consenting adults. No one's getting hurt unless they want to. And I'll agree with you, up to a point, these are consenting adults. However, since sexual impurity degrades our bodies, I would challenge the claim no one's getting hurt, even if people enjoy the process. 
And that brings us to verses 26 and 27. Because of this, that is because we worship created things instead of the creator, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Notice the shameful lusts were already there. God's giving us over now. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. That is, sin carries its own consequences. Now, to be clear, same-sex behaviour is no more and no less evil than any other form of sexual sin, or for that matter, the sins mentioned in verses 28 to 32, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Sins like envy and slander and boasting. Again, for clarity, Paul doesn't condemn same-sex behaviour because he's homophobic. Paul simply upholds the sexual ethic revealed by God and grounded in creation. That same sexual ethic that is upheld in Jewish law, which is also the same sexual ethic we heard Jesus uphold in our series from the Sermon on the Mount. Namely, that the one safe place God has set aside for the expression of sexual relationships is the marriage relationship between one biological man and one biological woman. So then, why does Paul raise the issue of same-sex behaviour here? He points to same-sex behaviour to illustrate how far we've moved from the natural order stitched into God's good creation. Now, to make that point, you might use a different illustration. Fair enough. But that might say something about us and the extent to which our minds and our hearts have been shaped by the culture around us. To say nothing of the relentless campaign to normalise same-sex behaviour. You see it in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you see it in Friends. I watch those shows and I laugh along with the rest of you. You know, when I was on holidays, I noticed even the Etalong Diggers Club is now hosting Drag Queen Bingo. But someone might say to me, listen, you know, Dougal, same-sex attraction feels natural to me. And again, I'd say to you, fair enough, by which I mean, all kinds of sin feels natural to me too. But we have to be careful. The way Paul uses the word nature here, he's not talking to us about what feels natural to us. 
He's pointing to the natural order of creation, which includes the loving boundaries of God's good design for sexual intimacy. One man, one woman, in the context of lifelong, committed, exclusive marriage. Now, I'm well aware and was reminded of this this morning, how disagreeable my comments are in our cultural moment. Our city thinks very differently on this issue. I'd alert you to the fact that the city of Rome felt very differently about these issues too because, of course, in Rome, same-sex behaviour was accepted and it was part of the social fabric. I would also want you to know that it's neither homophobic nor is it unloving to uphold politely, politely, God's good word about sex. That's not homophobic, it's not unloving to politely uphold God's good word about sex. I'd go a step further and I would say that if you're a Christian here tonight, we have an opportunity through our upholding And by that I mean our living out of God's good design about sex. We have an opportunity to show people what God's good story about sex looks like. What God's better story about relationships looks like. And and I've got to say, this is so needed in a world that is deeply confused about issues of intimacy and sexual relationships. And in a world that keeps telling people to give in, disciples who experience same-sex attraction need our support. And we need theirs too. Because while we cannot affirm same-sex behaviour, it's worth remembering our church community functions like a rehab centre. This is a rehab centre for sinners of all kinds. My name's Dougal and I'm a sinner. Maybe we should start our meetings that way. It would be a good leveller, wouldn't it? Now, you may be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, I don't experience same-sex attraction. But who among us can say they're not convicted by verses 28 to 32? that long, ugly list of behaviours to which we have been given over by God. We won't go through them all, but look at the end of verse 29. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. It's quite the list, isn't it? Um, And by the way, did you notice, I mean, I could live with this if it said that we gossip or that we slander. It doesn't say that. It says they are. This is our character outside of Christ. This is what we're like. Just by way of coming attractions, if 
after reading Romans 1. There's still someone here who thinks they occupy a position of moral superiority. Well, as surely as night follows day, Romans chapter 2 follows Romans chapter 1. Probably the least controversial thing I'll say tonight. If you think you occupy a position of moral superiority, you have got something of a reality check coming your way. You might want to read ahead. You, therefore, have no excuse. Chapter 2. But how do we respond to Romans 1? I think this might be one of those occasions where the practical application of a passage like this is that we simply tremble at God's word. In humility, in confession, in repentance, but with thanksgiving for his mercy, because remember, the gospel is powerful to save. We need to remember that. But when you strip away the detail of the second half of this chapter, the unsettling truth is we have seriously offended our loving Heavenly Father. So is there any good news here? When the gospel is meant to be good news... But I think even the most optimistic person would struggle to find the bright side here. And so what some people do is they come to a passage like this and they manufacture good news. Or better still, they just ignore the passage altogether. And I have to tell you, this is a very popular approach. Oh, it doesn't really mean that. I know it says that, but what you've got to understand is it doesn't really matter what you say next. You may as well ignore the passage if you're going to read it like that. No, misrepresenting and withholding God's word dishonours his son and it harms his people. And I won't do it. It's a hard passage, but I won't do it. People want me to. I can assure you of that. But I won't. And one of the reasons is, there is good news here. There is. And I'll prove it to you. We might instinctively recoil from God's anger. That I understand. I get that. But actually, we want him to act like this. We want him to right wrongs. We want him to see injustice and to do something about it. We want God to respond to evil. Our problem is we're quite comfortable when he does it out there. But the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth.
And yet, it's in the very darkest part of this passage, I suggest to you we have reason for hope. Do you remember that horrible repeated phrase, God gave them over? Giving us over to our desires as an act of judgment, a preview of the final judgment that's to come. Do you know that very same phrase, given over, it pops up elsewhere. At the first Easter, the women go to Jesus' tomb. They don't find him there. Instead, they're confronted by a couple of angels who say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. The Son of God, given over to sinners so that he might shield sinners from the wrath of God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that saves the Son of God given over that we might have a right standing with God given to us as a gift. As the Son of God shields us from the wrath of God. And it's for that reason and only that reason, I think, in Romans 1, that I hope you can still say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I've done shameful things, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because in the gospel, I find the Son of God stepping in to shield me from the wrath of God. I'm not ashamed of that. And I pray that you won't be either. But this is a heavy word. There's no dodging that. And the right response is to be humbled by it and to allow ourselves to be convicted by God's Spirit. It hurts to be convicted, but it's good when it leads you to repentance. The Son of God given over, that he would shield sinners from the wrath of God. I'm going to pray. Why don't you join me? Heavenly Father, we do uh, receive this word, heavy as it is, and possibly with very heavy hearts. Uh, Father, we do pray for the work of your spirit that he would expose those parts of our lives that we know displease you, and that by the power of the spirit you would give us the strength to turn away from evil and that we would run to you for mercy 
confident that in your son you more than provide for our needs. And Father, we also pray that we would be an encouragement to one another, that you'd remove from us any sense of self-righteousness so that we might bear with one another and encourage one another to keep living for Jesus, to keep pointing one another to him so that our lives would bring honour to Jesus and that through us, others might come to saving faith too while there's still time. Father, would you hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord? Amen.